Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thank you all for tuning into the show tonight. Recorded live. Amazing episode we're going to have. We have Douglas Dietrich coming back on the show to talk about World War II didn't end the way you think. Like, but I thought I knew how it ended. So I guess I guess I'm going to get a history lesson tonight. Just Energy Radio is brought to you by SoulHealer.com, where you can find out about all the products and services I offer, including medical intuition evaluations, energy healing, and psychic readings. So if you need some guidance or advice, have a health situation, a problem at work, or a problem in your relationship, give me a call, send me an email, and we can set up a time for a private consultation. It's also brought to you by the Institute of Applied Energetics, where you can jumpstart your intuition today by downloading their free 50-page guide. That's www.appliedenergeticsinstitute.com. And if you haven't gotten your copy of Icon, Deconstructing the Archetypes of the Ancients, they're still available. You can get a DVD copy, you can get a digital download, or you can do the, like, little rental thing, and that's only $1.99, written and produced by you-know-who, me. So that's priceless right there. Anyway, let me tell you a little bit about Douglas Dietrich and get him on the air. Douglas Dietrich was a DOD uh, research librarian for almost a decade responsible for incinerating highly classified materials on critical historical topics such as Pearl Harbor, Roswell, Vietnam, and the different ethnic holocausts, as well as documents exposing the reality behind vampire zombies, Soviet psychic warfare, and other occult phenomena. He has presented at conferences such as ConspiracyCon 2011 and UFO X-Fest, as well, and has been on radio shows, shows such as Coast to Coast with George Norrie, and of course here on Just Energy Radio. So please welcome to the show, Douglas Dietrich. Hey, Douglas, how are you? I'm much the better for speaking with you, Dr. Rita. Very honored to be back and uh, certainly glad to be talking about subjects that are important to all of us. Uh, even today, in historical context, I want people to recognize that uh, what we're going to talk about is not empty history or some kind of special semantics involving a redefinition of how that history turned out, but something that impacts us every day today. Well, you know, Douglas, it seems like in the last, I'm going to say 20 years, but maybe not even that far. There has been this mass movement of really redefining our history, our, our ancient history, with the whole ancient alien thing and, and how old are the pyramids. And I find it's interesting that some of the material you bring forward are mistruths that have been filtered into our contemporary history that are clouding our knowledge of ourselves today. Yes, 
Very much so. And uh, the problem is that people are much more comfortable with what is in the ancient past, because what is in the ancient past deals with many ethno-nationalist identities, such as Sumerians, uh, Babylonians. Uh, for the most part, these are people who no one is really going to relate to in the postmodern world. And as a result, kind of redefining our understanding of them is not quite so painful. Uh, what really is painful to a lot of people is having paradigms axioms, delusions and illusions that have been said and indoctrinated into them since childhood, totally shattered open. And uh, with your permission, I'd uh, like to get into some of that right now, uh, some impressions that people have of who's running the world, who's not. Uh, I'll leave it to you to start off with some questions that take us in that direction. But definitely, I want people to understand uh, better get ready because everything you thought was true, for the most part, is going to be proven entirely wrong. Well, I think the first place I would like to start, because this is something that I find interesting and fascinating, is um, the concept of, well, I'm, I'm going to back up. Individuals like Jim Mars talk about that the Third Reich never died and that they are this viable force underlying the government and the New World Order and secret societies and stuff like that. In your research, what happened to the Nazis after the war? Well, uh, let's get into this in such a way that people understand the reality of what we're talking about. Uh, the first thing that I'd like to say is that Jim Mars is someone that I've spoken to on air, on Coast to Coast, as a caller myself. I called in, I spoke to Jim Mars for a few minutes on air, and uh, certainly he's one of the nicest men you'll ever meet. The, the problem with Jim Mars, and there is a problem with what he's doing, is not in the individual himself. He's doing the best that he can do as an investigative journalist. Now, like any other investigative researchers, this includes Joseph Fell, many other men who are uh, doing their best to dig up what they can out of documents that are available through academia or through the military to the media, they're trying to piece together a puzzle. And uh, the problem is all of the fragments that they get are very jagged, very shattered, and they piece together a uh, pastiche of grease paint that uh, reeks. It really has nothing to do with reality, and they're misdirecting everyone. What people get the impression of through individuals like Jim Mars is of a NOG or a Nazi occupation government. Now, this is utterly ridiculous. It's as absurd and as ultimately self-defeating and degrading to all humanity as the concept of a Zog or a Zionist occupation government that's pushed by neo-Nazi skinheads. It's ridiculous for all of the reasons that should be obvious. If the National Socialistisch ran America and the Western world, the trains would run on time. You would not have an ethnically interbreeding population. The highest rate of birth in the world is amongst people like myself, mixed race births that are happening uh, increasingly in America's inner cities uh, on a daily basis. Beyond that, you have an exceptionally small military, despite the fact that you have an enormous military 
budget. This is all due to enormous corruption and incompetence. Now, the National Socialists were famous for full, total wartime mobilization, making the most of all the resources that they had in the most ruthlessly efficient manner. You certainly don't have that in the United States. You have the entire Department of Defense of 100,000 bureaucrats, together with your reserves, with your Marine Corps, your Coast Guard, all the various branches of military service, including the National Guard, and you come up with less than 1% of the population. Now, with that small amount of people in the military, you really are stretched thin all over the world, and all the money goes into the pockets of a lot of people's slush funds. These are corrupt generals, various politicians, defense contractors. Now, none of this would have existed in the Reich, and beyond that, of course, you have uh, a reality of, of course, a large Jewish immigrant population that came over in the Second World War for understandable reasons that are known historically, popularly as the Holocaust. Now, many of these people came here and resettled to escape genocide. So we do have a large Jewish presence, undeniably, in Hollywood. We do have a large Jewish presence, undeniably, in finances. Do you think a Nazi government would allow that? <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous. And, 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 and I'm just going to throw, I'm just going to throw in, you know, my understanding, and, and this is just my understanding, was that it wasn't necessarily running the United States, but was kind of being more, you know, like more New World Order. But I, I see what you're saying. It's like all the things that they were against are are happening. So, yes, yeah. it, it, yeah. and, and, and to put this in some perspective, this is not to say um, that uh, the Third Reich never died is exactly what I said in the last interview that we had. That's quite true. But to put it into some perspective, that's not what Jim Mars says. Jim Mars uses the term Fourth Reich. Many people use that term Fourth Reich, and it is a misnomer. It's a misapplication. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, there is no officially recognized Fourth Reich. No one is uh, out there uh, waving any flags that are representative of a Fourth Reich. So what exactly did I mean when I said the Third Reich never died, as opposed to what Jim Mars is saying, which is basically there's some kind of obscure cabal of financial influences that are bringing forth a new world order, uh, absolutely absurd in the face of it, because we're a new world order to be national socialist-influenced or Nazi-influenced, to use the uh, popular vernacular, uh, we would have a very fascistic new world order, as opposed to what we have, which is a lot of laissez-faire capitalism and a lot of incompetent uh, corruption on the part of uh, international bureaucracies like the United Nations. So what we have is basically a system that's going down the tubes. I'm not saying that the National Socialist system is idyllic or utopian, uh, but the one thing that could be stated for it would be a ruthless efficiency, no matter how murderous it was, certainly at the time during proactive uh, prosecution of hostilities. Now, uh, in terms of where we are at today, uh, the National Socialist government in exile is very similar to the government which I was born in, which again, very few people know about. And briefly, I was born on the island of Taiwan, on which the reconstituted Nationalist Republic of China exists. 
Now, the war between Japan and China lasted uh, for quite some time, but uh, it ended around 1945, at which point the nationalist government of China had to put all of its resources into fighting the communist insurgency. Now, the Americans supported the communist insurgency. This was actually a, uh, shall we say, a policy that had started as unofficial as it was during the Roosevelt administration. And at that time, you had Evans Fortas Carlson, who essentially started the Second World War between Japan and China and America, excuse me, between Japan and America within the Chinese theater on the mainland of Asia. My father was there in country at the time. My father was uh, 16 years old. He joined the U.S. Navy to escape from uh, Rochester, New York, which was a Kodak company town, uh, run like a concentration camp. He basically got, joined the Navy to get as far away as possible, and they gave him that wish. They fulfilled it. He was sent to China. While he was in theater, China commanded and he was, along with the British, basically cooperating with the Japanese to try and put down piracy on the rivers and fight the warlords that were endemic throughout China at the time. Now, all of that changed when uh, General um, Claire Chenault, uh, uh, General uh, Fortis, uh, and General uh, Fortis Evans Carlson came onto the scene. Now, Evans Fortis Carlson was a Marine Corps general. He was an adamant communist in any other uh, administration, he would have been court-martialed for treason. But in the Roosevelt administration, he was given promotion to the rank of field general, and he had an entire staff, this man, accountants, logistical support, quartermasters, he had thousands of men underneath him, and uh, they basically broke up the peace talks between nationalist China and Japan in the capital of China at that time, Nanjing. And when they did, they did so by attacking dressed as Chinese guerrillas in ink-blackened uh, Chinese coolie uniforms, very similar to the later-day Viet Minh, and the Japanese naturally assumed this was a Chinese ambush. Uh, the rape of Nanjing began, and hundreds of thousands of people died. It was only later the Japanese identified their assailants as Caucasians. And there were only two Caucasian powers in central China at the time, the British and the Americans. That's when the Japanese retaliated by bombing the United States ship Panay and His Majesty's ship Ladybird. And this was on December 12th through the 13th of 1937. At that point in history, the United States and Japan went to war. And at that point, everyone back in the United States knew it. Every time my dad went home on leave, everybody would ask him, how's the war going with the Japs? Now, this was years before Pearl Harbor, and everybody knew we were at war with Japan. And uh, suddenly, when Pearl Harbor happens, everyone's offended and everyone's surprised. It would be as ridiculous as the North Vietnamese conducting an attack in mainland United States and everybody being shocked or surprised that they did so simply because we were killing tens of thousands of Vietnamese overseas. So this is the kind of nonsense that we're dealing with in terms of American irrationality and their lack of temporal context or chronological index. But beyond that, we had a situation in which the Chinese nationalists which formed the government that relocated to Taiwan in which I was born, found themselves at war with these communists that Roosevelt and Evans, uh, you know, Evans Fortis uh, Carlson supported, as well as Claire Chenault. And what happened was 
they wound up killing more of each other in this massive communist nationalist war the Chinese did than Chinese were killed by Japan. And the Japanese killed 100 million Chinese throughout the Second World War. And it went well beyond that within the Civil War, which is always more vicious than an international war in China. So at that time, the nationalist Chinese were forced to switch sides. And in 1945, they became a member of the anti-Comintern, or the anti-communist international, the Axis. So when they relocated onto Taiwan, then they brought a lot of the Axis governments with them. So what happened was, just as in World War II, when the Axis powers occupied Denmark, they occupied France, they occupied the Philippines, they occupied many other nations in the world, many exile governments were formed in the United States. Now, I know all about this because I dealt with the documents. The United Nations was formed on January 1st of 1942, exactly three weeks and three days after the Pearl Harbor surgical strike. And when it was formed, it was formed as a military organization per Title 42 of the United Nations Charter, as an organization of war. In lieu of a constitution, they have a charter as an international organization. It was formed on the Presidio military base of San Francisco. That was its Pentagon. And its job from there was to coordinate all of the resistance armies behind Axis-occupied lines uh, to fight the Axis powers, the resistance armies of Denmark, the Philippines, anywhere in the world, they were all coordinated, uh, half a hundred governments through the Presidio military base of San Francisco. The peace branch of that organization, the United Nations, was opened in 1945 in New York City. But the war branch is where the peace treaty between Japan and the United States was ultimately signed in 1951. Uh, the, the Japanese-American Peace Treaty, again, September 28, 1951, signed on site the Presidio military base. This is where I worked as a Department of Defense librarian for decades, uh, well, nigh a decade, and uh, certainly went there a decade beforehand as a child, reading everything I could in the library that was open to the public without security clearances, who was a member of the U.S. military family system. We are called military dependents. Now, in terms of everything I was exposed to, later on classified as a genuine military librarian, I can tell you the fact that we were at war well before uh, Pearl Harbor took place, both in uh, Asia and, of course, unofficially in Europe. And then when the war came to an end, it was at a far different time than most people realized. And the overwhelming majority of these documents were destroyed. I destroyed quite a few of them as a DOD librarian under orders. I incinerated them so they would never go to the media, so they would never go to academia. So everything the professors and, of did course, you, you know, did you work or did you just sit around reading all of this stuff and, and making copies? No. Uh, I, co I collated and uh, made enormous amounts of notes, and I also had a very good memory, and I committed many of the details to memory, much of which I leaked, by the way, so there is much of this that is out there. If people look up the Japanese-American Peace Treaty, they will find it on the Internet, and they will find that the peace treaty was signed on September 28th of 1951, did not go into effect until August 28th of 1952. So until 1952, the United States and the Empire of Japan were legally at war. That war ended in Japan's favor. Japan won that war. We can go into that in, in later in the show as we move in, but in terms of America's war with the Third Reich, it never ended. It's very similar to what's going on in North Korea and what's going on in uh, island China. That happened in the Korean Peninsula was that North Korea and South Korea are still legally at war. The United States was part of a United Nations action on the Korean Peninsula. They entered into 
a ceasefire. That ceasefire is held today under talks and discussions at Panmunjom in, for all intents and purposes, perpetuity. So we're constantly meeting there for a still ongoing war that legally has both nation states, North and South Korea, mobilized. The United Nations is still involved. Any American troops' bodies who are found dead from the Korean Peninsula conflict lasting from 1951 to 1953, their bodies are shipped home in coffins which are draped in the United Nations flag. Their coffins are not draped under the United States flag. They're draped under the United Nations flag. They're counted as United Nations casualties. So that's why you never hear of anyone dying in Korea. <laughs> now, we get back to the state of the war between China. It's, it's still in a state of civil war. Communist China declares Taiwan its renegade province. Taiwan declares itself the legitimate government of mainland China. They are still legally in a state of war. Now, my nation, I was born in, uh, the nationalist Chinese government was one of the founding members of the United Nations. We were on the Security Council along with the Soviet Union, the United States, Britain, France, and uh, Russia. Yeah, I mean, the Soviet Union, Britain, France, the United States. Uh, I'm trying to remember. It was just basically five in the original Security Council, and nationalist China was one of them. We were later on evicted because we sided with Japan and Germany as part of the Axis. As a result, communist China was moved in. That's why Taiwan, the Nationalist Republic on that island, is not recognized by the United Nations today. So as a result, uh, you have this entire situation that has turned on its head. Nobody remembers it in the United States. Nobody knows why, and nobody asks. Well, just as all the exile governments from Europe and Asia came to the United States and opened up shop here, for the most part, during World War II, where did all the Axis governments go? Where did the embassies for the Romanian government in exile under the fascist Ivan Guard of Horosima go? Where did the Italian fascist government go? Where did the National Socialist government go? Their embassies are in Taiwan. All of these embassies are there for the World War II European governments and many Asian ones. And all of this is unrecognized by the United Nations. That's why Taiwan, even though it's one of the largest economies in the world, it's got 25 million people, but its economy is well beyond its population in terms of clout. It is one of the wealthiest nations on Earth, and it produces the overwhelming majority of the world's computer hardware. If it were taken off the map by some horrible holocaust, your computers would soon, your entire Internet would soon cease to function in terms of much of its hardware and framework. Now, nevertheless, no one recognizes its existence. It's on a map only as some renegade province of China. There's no official acknowledgement of it. If you ask the United Nations about it, they'll say, Nationalist Republic doesn't exist. It's the same way with the Third Reich. So these governments still exist in exile. They want nothing to do with the decadent or degenerate governments as they consider them in the rest of the world, and they are immune to prosecution because the United Nations has no power to investigate Taiwan's nuclear arsenal. They could investigate weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. They could investigate weapons of mass destruction in Russia. But these are members of the United Nations because they have no jurisdiction over Taiwan. Taiwan has one of the nuclear, uh, largest nuclear arsenals in the world. That's why China can never invade. But no one knows this. It's the same with the National Socialistic government in exile. That's the important thing to keep in perspective. Doctor? Wow. Uh, yes. Well, I just am like going, wow. Um, yes. How, how so, do we... How do we – all right, let me ask this question. So there is 
the government, and I'll use Taiwan, the government that sits on the outside, the one that our representatives and ambassadors go and negotiate with. And so what you're saying is that there is also this other government sitting underneath, or are they parallel? What's that relationship, you know, what's on the outside versus what's running everything? You mean on the world in general, kind of like the world scene in general? Well, using Taiwan as the example, there is the Taiwan that the United States recognizes as a country and, you know, our ambassadors will interact with. And then there is this government that you're talking about, but it doesn't sound like they're the same. Okay, oh, that, that's what confused me, and I apologize. That's what I miscommunicated. Uh, there is no government of the Nationalist Republic of China on the island of Taiwan that anyone interacts with. There are no embassies. There are illegal consulates, or what they would call goodwill offices, uh, more properly. They're not even recognized as consulates. Uh, The difference between an embassy, of course, is one that sits in the capital of a nation state like Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia. A consulate would be some foreign representative office in San Francisco. Now, North Korea has these facilities. Taiwan has none of these. Taiwan will have secret offices that are run like underground businesses for mafios. Uh, they basically are like mafia dons. I'm not saying this to make them sound somehow repulsive or to make them sound somehow uh, negative. This is just the reality of the situation. You've got one of the most powerful economies in the world that has the wealthiest quality of life on Earth next to that of perhaps Japan. And other than that, you've got nobody recognizing that they exist. There are no embassies. There are no consulates. There's no di- diplomats. There's no statesmen. So the only thing that happens is unofficial visits will occur between some of the politicians like the mayor of Taiwan, who later became the mayor of Taipei, the capital of Taiwan, who later became its president, he visited the United States before he became president so that he could do things unofficially here. The way the Taiwanese dealt with the Clinton administration was through Buddhist monks who bribed the Clinton administration to send carriers down to the Taiwan Straits when China started rattling sabers. So all of this is done by bribery and corruption on the part of the West. Now, in Taiwan, where I grew up, this is a fascist government. The salute is the Roman salute. The salute is that of the Sikh Heil. Now, this is what we display before our flag. No one in the world knows this. <laughs> no one who even realizes that was a Taiwan. Now, why would they do this? Some might ask. The reality is, to the Chinese people, the swastika and the Hakenkreuz under the National Socialist regime was a sign of refuge and salvation because it was Adolf Hitler who was still deciding between a formal alliance between Nationalist China or Imperial Japan at the time that the Americans created and generated the incident that caused the Nanjing Massacre that led to war between Japan and the United States on the Chinese mainland. Now, at that time, uh, he ordered Soup, one of his ambassadors in Shanghai, to uh, fly the largest National Socialist flag ever created. It weighed half a ton. It was so huge, you couldn't fly it. They had to put it over building rooftops. This acted as a huge field tent for Chinese to find shelter under from Japanese massacre. So to the Chinese people, the National Socialists are the good guys. This is why you will see many photographs 
of National Socialistic uniforms on Chinese troops. If you ever take a look at Why We Fight, that old propaganda film made in World War II for the United States, they show you flat out, here's our allies, the Chinese, and they're all wearing Stahlhelm. They're all wearing Nazi uniforms. <laughs> <And> you <laughs> ask yourself, what's going on? And it doesn't make any sense, but of course the Americans just nod their heads like an assembly line of hood ornaments and say, well, that's right, where's our allies, the Chinese? I don't know why they're dressed like that, but, you know, uh, at any rate, Chiang Kai-shek's son went to a National Socialistic Military Academy and, of course, was trained by the German warfare techniques. So we have a situation in which that entire type of government and social system has made it to Taiwan. It's been extremely successful as an economy. It was the only economy which did not have a bubble burst like the Japanese and the Indonesians and the rest of the Asian tigers during the recession. It's totally immune to that economically because it's on a totally different economic system. It's also on a totally different military system. But you might ask, how did we get involved in this insane war? How did the U.S. get involved in that? Uh, of course, is, as I explained, it was 1937, but it was well before then. I've explained this on a few times, but so very briefly, the Americans installed a man named Durham White Stevens as the dictator of Korea. This was on September 15th of 1905, right after the Russo-Japanese War, and uh, the Japanese were forced during the peace negotiations by the Americans to uh, make the uh, man, Durham White Stevens, who was basically a Japanese government advisor for their industry, they were forced to make him the foreign advisor to the Korean King Kojong. And uh, this was a position of such importance that the New York Times obituary four years later said that uh, he was known throughout Asia as the dictator of Korea. And this was an American, and this was in 1905. This would be the equivalent of a Japanese forcing the Americans to install a Japanese prime minister over Canada. And then the Americans, of course, in 1889 had invaded the Philippines, where they slaughtered millions of Filipino Muslims, three million. And this is why the Muslims hate Americans. So when the Americans slaughtered three million Filipino Muslims, how do you think the Japanese felt when they bordered directly by maritime border? Because at that time, Taiwan, the island of Taiwan, was an integral part of Japan. So at that point, the Japanese had a direct maritime border with the Philippines. This would have been the equivalent of the Japanese invading Mexico and slaughtering millions of Mexicans. Now, the but Americans... I, you know, I think it's interesting that... You know, we talk about the Nazis. I mean, they all right, they put people in concentration camps and did atrocious things. But if 10 years before, or however long ago it was before, we went into a country and killed off 3 million people that, you know, looking at the Philippines, it doesn't look like they were prepared to deal with U.S. forces. Um, shame on us. Oh, indeed. <laughs> indeed. And this is part of the horror of what generated the world war. So what we need to go into, of course. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.